Father in heaven, we thank you again for this day that you've made for our rest, that we might remember what you've done for us and reflect on it. We pray that you'd be with us, especially in this afternoon hour, as we pay attention to what your word has to teach us about the Christian life and how we can think more effectively about it together. So would you bless our time, Lord, forgive us our sins, we pray, and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we're going to go in again on the Calvin on the Christian life. Um, I was going to make the joke that now that I'm officially your pastor, you have to listen to me, but you've already been told that in the sermon, so I don't need to repeat that for you. Um, so we, we've talked a little bit about Calvin on the Christian life, kind of introduced the topic um, last week, and it's a very important topic, obviously. How do we live the Christian life? How do we think about living the Christian life? And just to remind us of how... Uh, how Calvin uh, described that, uh, how Calvin described the work of the Christian life to us last week. Um, He said, it's the constant study and exercise in mortifying the flesh until it is certainly slain and the Spirit of God obtains dominion in us. Um, The constant study and exercise of mortifying the sinful nature, bringing to life uh, the new nature so that the Spirit has complete dominion over us, and we can see just by that definition that that's a lifelong process that we have to be engaged in um, as the people of God. And there he's just borrowing from places like Colossians 3 uh, that talk about in Scripture what the Christian life is all about. And he encouraged us to say that's not something we're trying to do on our own, that's a work that the Holy Spirit is accomplishing in us. Uh, so it's primarily the Spirit's work to sanctify his people, and the Spirit is at work in us. Uh, that it's the Spirit, he says, instilling his holiness in our, into our souls and inspiring them with new thoughts and affections. That the Holy Spirit works in us uh, to teach us a love for righteousness and to command uh, what righteousness is, give us rules for righteousness according to the Word of God. And so we, we ended last week talking about what is the fundamental rule of righteousness uh, that, that Calvin points to Jesus teaching us. Um, And he says the fundamental rule of righteousness is self-denial. If we want to summarize what we are to be about in the Christian life, he says self-denial is the thing to think about. Uh, The main rule of the Christian life is self-denial. And of course he gets that from uh, the words of our Lord. Um, In Matthew 16, verse 24, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. The Christian life is a life of self-denial so that we might follow Jesus. Calvin also points us to Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Present yourself as a living sacrifice, uh, that we are in a sense to sacrifice our lives to the Lord for his service. Um, So he would say self-denial is the rule of the Christian life, but of course he lived in a time where people took that in their own way. Um, We can think of the the people who decided to go live lives like hermits, um, people who decided to live like monks, people who would abuse their bodies as a means of self-denial. And so he knows that just to say that is not enough, that we have to flesh that out according to Scripture, 
to help us know what does God mean by that when he says we need to deny ourselves. And so Calvin helpfully gave us four principles for what self-denial means for the Christian life. Uh, Four principles of self-denial that we can apply. Um, The first is that we are gods. Not that we are gods, no apostrophe, um, but that we belong to God. So the first principle of self-denial is to recognize that we are not our own, but we belong to God. Uh, You might have heard that somewhere else. Uh, What's your only comfort in life and in death? That you're not your own, but you belong, body and soul, in life and in death to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The first principle of the Christian life is to recognize that we belong to God. Um, And it helps us do two things. It helps us to avoid errors Um, And it also helps us to understand the goal to which we ought to direct our lives. Um, If we are not our own, but we belong to God, we must withdraw as much as we can from governing ourselves by our own will, according to what we think is right, according to what we think is true. Um, We are to direct ourselves as God would have us walk. Um, We're to renounce our wills in favor of God's wills. Calvin says, following our own will is the surest source of our own destruction. Our wills are not to be trusted. Our wills are fallen. Sin is deceitful. Following our own will is a sure means for walking into trouble, for ending up in our own destruction. And so we have to renounce that. Um, And the only haven of safety, Calvin says, is to follow God wherever he leads. Um, And that's helpful for us to to recognize, to abandon ourselves and to devote our energy to the service of our God. Um, And Calvin puts that in a beautiful way. Um, This is all from book three of the Institutes, but he says, we are not our own, therefore neither is our own reason or will to rule our acts and plans. We are not our own, therefore let us make it our aim to seek what may be agreed, not to not seek what may be agreeable to our sinful nature. We are not our own, therefore, as far as possible, let us forget ourselves and the things that are ours. On the other hand, we are gods. Let let us, therefore, live and die to him. We are gods, therefore, let his wisdom and will prevail over all our actions. We are gods. To him, then, as the only legitimate aim, let every part of our life be directed." So the first step of the Christian life in applying that rule of self-denial that our Lord teaches is to recognize that we are not our own, that we belong to God, and that the things of God ought to rule our lives, to abandon ourselves and devote the whole energy of our minds to the service of God. That's what Calvin says really is the first principle if we want to deny ourselves and follow Jesus, the first thing we're going to have to do is recognize that we are not our own. We belong to God. Um, The second principle is that we must seek God's glory. He says, if you want to understand what it is to deny yourself, first it's to recognize that you're not your own, you belong to God. Uh, The second thing we need to understand is that we are to be seeking God's glory, not to seek our own glory. Um, Part of self-denial means denying our own glory and seeking God. That we are to live life under God, we are to live life unto God. uh, So that his glory would eclipse everything in us that would seek for false pride, that would seek for greed, that would seek for hypocrisy. 
um, that we would not seek to glorify ourselves, but that we would seek in everything to glorify God. Um, and that's clarified for us in Titus chapter 2. What does that look like? How do we understand what this means? Um, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works." Um, a love for God's glory has to reign in us so that we will renounce that desire to glorify ourselves. Um, Calvin says, wherever self-love reigns, the foulest vices are indulged without shame. Or if there is some appearance of virtue, it is vitiated by a depraved longing for applause. The old saying is true, there is a world of iniquity treasured up in the human soul. Um, you can think of what Jesus says about the Pharisees who love doing things in public so that people see what they're doing, but their purpose is that they might be glorified for what they're doing. Um, the modern day equivalent of that on social media is virtue signaling. Uh, people talk about that. You make a comment so that people see how woke you are or how engaged you are in the, in the, in the issues before you. And it's not primarily because you're actually concerned about the things, but you're just, we want people to think you're concerned about the things. So you have the right Facebook profile filter over your picture at the appropriate time. You have the right hashtag attached to your tweets so that people know that you know what's going on. But of course, the most important thing is that you actually care about those things. Uh, that your heart is engaged in the things of God, that your heart is engaged for God's glory to find out that it's not motivated by a self-love and so that people see us and are glorified, but so that God might be glorified. Um, and that kind of self-love that interferes with that needs to be put off more and more. And nothing is more difficult than that. In really doing things solely for God's glory and not wanting to take any of that for ourselves, um, nothing is more difficult than the denial of self, devotion to God and our neighbors, and as Calvin says, to lead an angelic life amid the pollutions of this world. Uh, nothing is really more difficult than doing that, trying to glorify God and not trying to take that glory for ourselves. And that's, of course, why Paul, in talking about that glory in Titus 2, reminds us of the blessed hope of the coming of Christ. Um, that, that as much as we think about the difficulties of engaging in these things, um, and living life under these two principles with two more to come, um, how, do we, how do we have the hope of doing that? Well, we hold out for ourselves that God's glory will appear, that God's glory will shine in us and through us, that God will perfect the work that he's doing. So we are waiting for our blessed hope, not just because all will be well for us when Christ comes again in glory, but because he will be perfectly glorified when he comes again in glory. Right, that, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord for what purpose? To the glory of God the Father. Right? And so that, that glorious purpose will be recognized when the Lord returns and we are to try to um, keep that going in our life, to fix our eyes, um, not the worldly inducements to sin and the vain glories of this world, but to focus on the glory of our God. Um, and so the third principle then is, we, we belong to God, we must seek God's glory. The, the third principle is we must seek our neighbor's good. 
suppose we should probably put the apostrophe there, right? All of our neighbors, good. Um, we should seek our neighbors, good. Um, one of the things about denying ourselves is not just that, that vertical dimension of the Christian life and doing all the duties that we owe to God, but also in doing all of those things that we owe to our neighbor on a horizontal level, right? We were reminded this morning, once again, those are the two principal commands of the law. Do what is pleasing to God and also love your neighbor, right? Love for God and love for neighbor can't be separated, and that's also true in the Christian life. We are not to seek our own good first. We are to seek the good of our neighbor first. But that's to be the principle of self-denial that guides us. And Calvin has a lot to say about this, not just how we live before God, but how we live in relationship to our neighbor. And that's often very important when we think about the Christian life and our good works. Um, Luther famously said, right, God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor does. Um, that's, that's one of the things that we think about when we do good things is that how do we help our neighbor? Uh, how do we promote our neighbor's good? How do we promote our neighbor's welfare? And, and Calvin says, you know, if we want to really think about how to do this, because this is very hard to put the neighbor first and not to put ourselves first. Um, how do we do that? That's, that's very difficult. Um, well, he says, everything that God has given to you has not been given to you for the end of just your own use, but so that you might help one another. To recognize that God gives you things to steward, not just for your own sake, but for the sake of those who are around you. Right? When Paul says, if you don't work, you don't eat... That has a, an impact for you personally, but he also goes on to say everybody should work so they have something to share with those in need, right? Not just to meet your own needs, but also to recognize that you've been given gifts by God that you might share them with other people. And so Calvin says if we really want to understand that, um, we have to understand that since God's freely given gifts are common to all, no man has the right to hold on to them as if they were for himself alone. Um, and he points to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Uh, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Um, any, any tendency we might have to say, well, this is mine. God has given it to me um, for my use. And yes, that's true. God wants us to enjoy the gifts that he gives to us. But we're reminded there's nothing that we have that we've not been given. There's nothing that we have that we've not been given by God. And all the things are given to us by God that we might be good stewards of them. Not just for ourselves, but for those who are around us. And this will help to keep us humble. To realize that however great the gifts that have been given to us, they are not to be used simply for our own good. But also to be exercised um, for the sake of our neighbor. This also helps to build and foster that respect for our fellow men. To be able to look around the world and see all of the people that God has made as those with whom we share a common humanity, a common creation in the image of God, that we are to see them as we see the Lord. Um, that we are to see the image of God in them and to keep that in our minds. Um, he says, because we always have a, a tendency to put ourselves over our neighbor. That's just by nature. Um, it, you know, if you like watching politics, you often will watch, you know, something on politics and say, what a bunch of morons that run the country, um, right? Now, who put those morons in charge, if, they, if that's even the case, right? We did, 
Well, there are representatives. Um, and so, but there's that tendency, right, to always be looking at the people over us, the people in authority, and always be saying, we could do better. Um, I read a really funny thing on public prayer once. It was, it was a book on public prayer for ministers and very helpful in a lot of ways. But it talked about this, this pastor who would never pray for the president and finally had someone come along and correct him. And so then when he finally prayed for the president in the pulpit, he said something like, Lord, help that bozo to do what's right, because without your help, he'll accomplish nothing. Now, that was not the kind of prayer that I think that congregant was hoping for or that God's word directs us to. And it was a good reminder because the bozo he had in mind was Thomas Jefferson, who he thought was an idiot who was ruining the country. Um, so it shows that we have a capacity to suspect even the best of us of not being what all they could, we could hope they were. Um, and Calvin just kind of calls that out. He says, hence the insolence with which each of us, as if exempted from the common lot, seeks to exalt himself above his neighbor, neighbor, confidently and proudly despising others, or at least looking down upon them as inferiors. The poor man yields to the rich, the servant to the master, the unlearned to the learned, and yet everyone inwardly cherishes some idea of his own superiority. Thus each flattering himself sets up a kind of kingdom in the breast. There is no other remedy than to pluck up by the roots those most noxious pests of self-love and love of victory. Right? If everyone else is a moron, the real problem is that we love ourselves too much. And even though there are people we have to submit to, um, God, God says we ought not to just regard them in our own self-love as if we are superior to everyone else, but actually to regard ourselves as the servants of all. Um, and to see them as people made in God's image that we should serve. And so everyone's been given gifts by God. Right, not all of us have the gifts maybe we'd like to have. And maybe we do spend a lot of time thinking about the gifts that we don't have and wish we had. Um, but everyone's been given gifts by God to be used for the service of our neighbors. And so what we have to do is not have that self-love that looks down on everybody else, but actually have that servant's heart that looks up to everyone else as someone we can serve in love and try to help with the gifts that God has given to us. And so Calvin says, the only way by which you can ever attain true meekness is to have your heart imbued with a humble opinion of yourself and respect for others. If we want to really be meek people, which is a good thing, that's not the same as being weak. If we really want to be meek, what do we have to do? We have to train ourselves to be humble and to have our heart filled with a humble opinion of ourselves. Um, and of a respect for others. How would that change the way we talk to one another? How would that change the landscape of social media or our political discourse if everyone had a more humble opinion of themselves and had higher respect for other people, even those with whom we disagree? Um, those are the things that we need to do, and that will help us along that goal of seeking our neighbor's good to have a better opinion of them and a lesser opinion of ourselves, which is sometimes hard for us to do. Um, the second thing we need to do if we're really going to seek our neighbor's good um, is out of respect for the image of God in man to pay our neighbor what we owe to God. Um, Calvin said, you know, really importantly, when you look at your neighbor, sometimes the challenge in loving our neighbors is we don't see much that's lovable in them. 
right? It's easy to love someone who's nice to you, right? Jesus said even the Pharisees and tax collectors can do that, can be nice to the people that are nice to them. The trick is being nice to the people who aren't so nice to you or being nice to the people who've actually hurt you and don't deserve good from you. Calvin said those are the people that it's really a challenge to love and to let love run out to them because they've positively harmed you. And yet our Lord tells us very clearly, you're to love not just your friendly neighbor, but also your enemy. And how are we to do that? What are we going to find in them that is worthy of loving? And Calvin says, they are all made in the image of God. Even if there is nothing good in them, there's a picture of God in them. And that is always something you can love in your neighbor, that they are made in the image of God. And he says how much more highly that's true of Christian brothers and sisters. Because they've not only been made in the image of God, they've been remade in the image of Christ. And there should be no problem, Calvin says, in loving God. Because there's nothing unlovable in him. Just as there's nothing to be, there's nothing unloving, unlovable about Christ. There's only things to love in him. And so Calvin says, if we really want to seek for our neighbor's good, when, especially when we can't see anything good in them, we have to see the image of God that's at work in them. We have to see the image of God in which they were made and then love what's, in God, what's God in them. Love that reflection of God that is seen in their lives. Um, that's what I think is lost when you have issues of racism and things like we've just witnessed in Poway. Um, because you look at something and you say, they're not like me. And, and even in a twisted, wicked way, you can get to the point of saying, there's something positively evil in them that I need to destroy. Right? That's a terrible, wicked thing for people to get to that point of saying something like that. And how, how do we really, at a, at a fundamental level, attack that notion is to say, every single person is created in the image of God. And he created them to reflect his image regardless of how he made them. Regardless of their gender, regardless of their color, right? Everything about us has been made by God and in some sense reflects the image of God. And so there's no basis to hate people. There's actually only a basis to love them if we look at them as who they are, being made in the image of God. And Calvin says if we can see that in our neighbor, if we can look to our neighbor and see the reflection of God in them, we'll find something that's actually easy to love. And then our love will be able to flow out to them. Um, He admits this is really difficult for us. This runs contrary to our nature, which is not to see people made in the image of God. Calvin says, to love those that hate us, to render good for evil and blessing for cursing, remembering that we are not to reflect on the wickedness of men, but to look on the image of God in them, an image which covering and obliterating their faults should by its beauty and dignity allure us to love and embrace them. That's hard. That's hard to do. But that's how we have to live our lives as Christians, to look at our neighbor and say, not what have they deserved from me? What have they earned from me? But Calvin says to look at our neighbor and say, what does God deserve from me? 
What has God earned from me? And then he says, that will allow you to let your love flow out. Because there's nothing that God doesn't deserve from us. There's no limit that we would put on what we owe to God. And he says, then you can let it flow out. And the only thing that will stop you is just running out of resources to help your neighbor. Running out of things to give. Running out of love to give. Um, Isn't that a beautiful picture of what society would be if we would live the way God has called us to live? To see the image of God in them and to love them for his sake. Um, And that's what he says, you know, thirdly, if we're really going to do this, we have to do it in a spirit of love. If we're really going to seek our neighbor's good, we have to do that in a spirit of love. A spirit of duty will not do this, right? Just the spirit of God's making me do it, so I guess I have to love you. Um, that's not a recipe for happy, happy love, kindness to neighbor, right? We have to do it in a spirit of love. Um, all the actions that we do for God and for neighbor are worthless without love, right? And that, that's basic stuff from 1 Corinthians uh, the, the, the beautiful chapter on love, right? If you don't have love, you're just a banging gong or a clanging cymbal. Everything has to begin with love. Um, and he says, you know, one of the very basic ways that we can promote love is to do simple things. You know, Calvin was a great high-thinking theologian, but he also knew how to make the practical very simple. He says, how do you, how do you grow in love for a neighbor? By putting, your, putting, your, putting yourself in your neighbor's shoes, If you were going through what your neighbor is going through, how would you want to be loved? Right, And we can do that by building in our own lives a sympathy for what our neighbors go through. Um, To listen to what people go through that maybe we don't go through. Challenges that other people face that maybe we don't face. Um, There's nothing wrong with that. Listening to how other people experience life in ways that maybe we don't experience life and to say, how would I want to be loved if that was my experience? What would I want to hear from my neighbor if I were in that situation? Um, To put ourselves in the position of the other person. To look at those who are less fortunate and to say, how terrible it would be to be in that situation. I mean, how would I want to be treated if I were someone in that situation? Here's the great theologian, right? Just saying, put yourself in the other person's shoes. How would you want to be loved if you were in their situation? Um, you probably wouldn't want someone who's going to come along and put you under their obligation to come and help you and then say, you owe me. Or to come with an arrogant lecturing spirit and say, you know, you got yourself into this problem. Let me tell you why you're so bad to have gotten yourself in this problem. That's not what you want to hear when you're in trouble. Right? What you need is help. Right? The Good Samaritan doesn't stop over the person that's beat up and said, you know, if you'd have been staying off this road at a bad time or traveling with a friend, none of this would have ever happened to you. Um, no, he does what you would want done if you'd been beat up by robbers on the road. He just helps. Um, there, there's a spirit of love that can motivate that kind of help. Um, Calvin says, everyone should consider that however great he is, he owes himself to his neighbors and that the only limit of his beneficence is the failure of his means. Again, you can stop helping your neighbor when you're out of ways to help. Um, And we can do that seeking our neighbor's good. Um, And then the final principle of self-denial, he says, is resignation to God's will. So we put it, maybe put it this way, we must accept God's will. 
sometimes the hard thing about living a life that denies ourselves is we're sure that by our own work we can make good provision for our lives. Um, you know, we, we feel like if our lives are in our hands, we have some control over our lives. And one of the hardest things about denying yourself and following after Jesus is resigning yourself to the fact that when you do that, you're going to have to follow him wherever he leads you. You have to resign yourself to the fact that he knows where you're going, even if you don't know where you're going together. Or even with following him, sometimes you say to yourself, we can't be on the right path. Now maybe we're too, we're too saintly to ever do that, but there are times in the Christian life where, you, where you're walking after Jesus and you, you, say, you want to say to him, this can't be the right road. We have to have gotten lost somewhere. And if I were in charge, we wouldn't be walking this way. This looks like a valley that's heading into a bad place. I, don't, I think we should have turned somewhere back there. Um, let me pull up GPS on my phone. I think I can figure out where we are and where we should go. Right? We're probably too, we're too pious probably to exactly say that, but I'm sure we've all felt that. Um, and if you haven't been made, maybe you're too young, but if you haven't been made to feel that in the Christian life, yet you will. This can't be the right path. Or you look at the promise and you look at the current reality and you say these can't be brought together. Right? Um, early on in, in my ministry in Torrance, there was a father who had cancer and he died, leaving behind a young wife and two really young kids. Um, and that was part of her struggle when I would visit with them and counsel the family, is I know that God does all things for good, and that all things God does work out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I know that, I believe that, but I can't fit in my mind how God is going to use this for my good, for the good of my two children that are now left without a father. Um, and it's a very real struggle, Right? I know that he's going to bring good out of it or he wouldn't let it happen. But how he's going to bring good out of it is completely, um, I have no way of thinking how this could possibly be turned for good. Um, and so one of the hard things about the Christian life is, in denying yourself and following Jesus is to resign yourself to going where he's leading and saying that he will know best even when it looks to me like he doesn't know what's best even when it looks to me like we're not going where we ought to go. Um, and Calvin said, one of the things is to realize that if you're walking on your own through the world, if you're not following anybody, you're not actually making better progress, you're lost. Right? The option in this world is not to follow Jesus or go my own way. It's to follow Jesus on a path that leads somewhere or to go your own way to be lost forever. Isaiah talks about that as just sort of wandering off into the dark. Um, that as long as we're following Jesus, we're never wandering off into the dark. And if we're not following Jesus, that's all we're doing, is wandering off into the dark. Even worldly prosperity without God's blessing becomes a curse. Um, even worldly adversity with God's command and care becomes a blessing. Because you know it's not coming to you by blind chance or you know, a bad flip of the coin or a bad roll of the dice. It's coming to you from a Father in heaven who loves us. 
Um, and Calvin says, you know, we properly denied ourselves when we have resigned ourselves entirely to the Lord, placing all the course of our lives entirely at his disposal. That's a really hard thing to do. Um, it was a hard thing for me to do when I first got the call from this congregation because I had a congregation I knew and loved in Torrance that I'd been serving for eight and a half years. I knew them. I knew what was going on there. I was well aversed in that. I knew where the landmines were. Um, you know where the problems are. You know where the blessings are. You know all that. And then when another church calls that's bigger than your church, where you don't know the people as well, you don't know the problems, you don't know where the landmines are, it can be easy to say to God, just let me do the safe thing I know and don't lead me to go anywhere else. And it's a hard thing to resign yourself to the will of God and to realize I have to go where you call me regardless of whether I think that's a great idea or a bad idea. Um, and through that process, he wonderfully showed that when you resign yourself to the will of God, you don't have to worry where he's leading you. Because when we're tempted to say, I'm not sure this is the way, the Lord can always turn back to us with gentleness and say, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. I make the way. Um, and I'm the person who, for whom the impossible is easy. Right? When, when in our minds we cannot reconcile how this evil that befalls us could possibly be turned to our good, we have a God who says to us, it's easy for me to do impossible things. That's easy. How am I going to turn this evil to your good? That's easy. Right? When, when Sarah was told, you know, Mother's Day, Sarah's told, you're going to be a mother. And she said, ha, funny. I'm 90-some years old. The way of, the women, way of women has ceased with me. I can't be a mother. That's impossible. She laughs. Right? And then when God kind of calls her out and says, why are you laughing? Her best defense is, I wasn't laughing. You're laughing. Um, right? No, she, she's caught laughing at God. And the, the response that comes is says, is anything too hard for God? That's the thing that, that's why we can resign ourselves to God's will. Because God says, it doesn't matter where the pathway leads. As long as you're following me, I can make the way clear. In fact, when God comes, the valleys come up to meet his feet and the mountains fall down before him and they make his way clear. Right? He doesn't have to walk around things. He walks through them. Things reorganize themselves for his path. He's in control of what's going on. And so really resigning yourself to God's will is the safest thing you can do. Even though it can time, at times feel like it's the hardest to just trust in God and say, you know where we're going, so I'm just going to follow you. That's maybe the hardest part of the Christian life. But I love that C.S. Lewis you know, points out, you know, it's a hard thing to do to give yourself into the hands of God, to be directed by him, but it's far easier than the things you're doing right now. Trying to keep it in your own hands and going your own way. Um, you have to put this mindset that I'm going to resign myself into the will of God. Um, but the consequence of having this frame of mind is very profound for the, for the Christian. If we can work on getting ourselves to that point, 
to saying that even though I know when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me and I can fear no evil. And actually I can know that goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's going to have a profound effect on the way we live. And Calvin said, there's a consequence if we can cultivate that frame of mind. Where he says, happen what may, he whose mind is thus composed will neither deem himself wretched nor murmur against God because of his lot. Whatever happens, knowing that it is ordered by the Lord. Knowing that, he will receive it with a placid and grateful mind and will not with stubborn disobedience resist the government of him at whose disposal he has placed himself and all that he has. If you place yourself and all that you have in God's hands, you'll find you've trusted a good person to care for those things. And the Lord Jesus Christ can testify to that, to us about that. I committed my spirit into the Father's hands, and I never had cause to regret it, even though it led me to a cross and to death it also led to blessedness and life. No one has ever trusted themselves to God and regretted it or trusted themselves to God and found that he was a hard master. Um, God's will is good for us. He is a faithful father. Um, he wants us to be blessed. And this life with all of its difficulties ends in the blessedness and the joy of the presence of God. Um, so when we don't know what the way is, sometimes God has to remind us, you don't know where we're going, but you know who's going with you. And you know where we end. You know where we end, even if you're not sure we're going the right way. And you know who's leading you. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who says, I've been to the valley. And I know that it comes out the other side. And so when it feels like we're walking into the wrong valley, know that we're going to come out the other side. So it's easy to put these principles on the board, right? And now say, all right, now just go out and put these things into effect in your life. This is going to be a lifelong exercise, a lifelong struggle, a lifelong effort that has to go in to reminding ourselves over and over again, I belong to God, not to myself. I'm to seek his glory, not my own glory. I'm to seek my neighbor's good, not my own good, and I'm to resign myself to God's will and not to my own will. Um, those are difficult things that we have to do with the Spirit's help, um, but this is the way we need to walk if we're going to try to encourage ourselves and to lead and go on following after our God. Um, and we can do that with the confidence that the hand of God is the ruler and arbiter of the fortunes of all. And therefore, instead of rushing on with thoughtless violence, God dispenses good and evil with perfect regularity. We can trust his will because he knows what he's doing and he promises good to his people. Um, so those are some of the principles of, of the Christian life that Calvin teaches. So we'll think more about the Christian life as we go on. But if we want to try to live that life of self-denial, denying ourselves and following after Christ, picking up our cross, these are some of the ways that we need to do and we need to remind ourselves over and over again. I'm not my own. I'm not seeking my own glory. I'm not following my own will. I'm not seeking my own good. Um, the more we could do this, the more we'll live lives that reflect the life of our Savior. Uh, so that's what I wanted to talk about um, this afternoon. Are there any questions about any of that? The question 
for someone who didn't hear it is, you know, if I still feel lonely, if I still feel lost, if I still feel uncared for, if I still am suffering, none of this makes the suffering any less real. You know, God never comes to us and says, the things you're suffering, are you're not really suffering. Um, God never does that to us. He never says our suffering is not real suffering. Um, and that's one of the advantages of the Psalms, is the Psalms often reflect not only the suffering, but but that struggle with, I'm suffering and I know you're good. And I know that you love me. Um, and I know that everything you've promised to me, but everything that's happening to me right now doesn't seem to match up with that. Um, you know, one of the great examples is Psalm 88, which is one of the bleakest Psalms in the Psalter. It begins with a great confession of faith, but the rest of it is very dark. Um, and so I think the Psalter says we are going to feel like that. It's not as if Jesus on the cross when he was suffering and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was sort of winking at those watching and saying, I'm saying that, but I really know that God is with me, so I'm really not troubled by all of this. Um, suffering is real, and the, the feelings of suffering are real, and we need, to, con- need to, to remind ourselves of those promises and to come alongside our neighbors. Um, you know, part of, part of that being a part of the covenant of faith is to, in the community of faith, like I said last time, is to know that there are burdens that are being carried by people in our congregation that we're not carrying. And that there are going to be times in a long enough timeline with the, the company of believers that when someone else is doing well, then they can minister to somebody who's in the valley of darkness, right? And so there's a community of believers to come alongside one another in that. But it's not wrong to say, I feel the suffering. Um, What the Psalms remind us of is what God wants is for us to call out to him in the midst of that suffering and to be honest with him. There's too many many people in the Christian, in the broader Christian community that say, you always have to wear a smile on your face. And somehow if you're not always wearing a smile on your face and showing the world how well everything's going, that that's not being Christian. Um, But that's not true. The, 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 the Bible teaches us there are many times that Christians feel alone. And even if they can come back to that statement of faith, I know I'm not alone. I know the Lord is with me. I know that I have a shepherd and he's not going to leave me or forsake me. Um, that doesn't mean that God's people have for, not, for a time and a season found themselves calling out, I know you're there, but if you're there, why is this happening? But sometimes that's what makes it harder, not easier. Right? If, sometimes if you were just a pagan and you believed everything happened to you by chance, if something bad was happening to you, you could just say, well, it's the bad luck of the draw. And sooner, sooner or later, the cards will change and things will be better. I'm low now, I'll be up later, it'll be fine. Um, but one of the hard things for the Christian is to say, I'm feeling this way despite the fact I know who's in control, who loves me, who's powerful for me. You know, God, I know you're a father. I know you're an almighty God. I know you're a faithful father who only does what's good for his children. But I can't understand why I'm feeling this way then with being you being who you are. And that that's a valid cry to God. Um, but what he wants us never to do is to, to despair of his faithfulness and to say, I will not leave you and forsake you. Even if everyone else forgets, you know, again, Mother's Day, right? He said, even, even a mother may forget her child. I will never forget you. Um, I've I've engraven you on the palms of my hands. Um, The Lord is always interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. And so he never forgets us, but that doesn't mean that our sufferings are not real um, and that we don't experience the the depths of that suffering. 
Um, you know, my, my brother went to visit someone in a nursing home in his congregation. He's a minister. And the person in the nursing home said, can you read me Psalm 88? And you do what you do when people ask you to do that. You do what they ask you to do, but then you wonder to yourself the whole time, what am I going to say about this? Because it sort of ends with darkness is my only friend. Um, and when he said, why did you want me to read that to you? She said, because that's how I feel. And I'm glad to know I'm not the only one. Um, that other people have felt that way too. Um, but the promise of Christianity is that the story always ends with the son of righteousness rising with healing in his wings. Um, that there is no harm in this life that heaven can't heal. Um, and that although we long for healing in this life, um, sometimes we have to live in the midst of suffering with hope uh, that you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, but that I will be at your right hand and at your right hand is joy forevermore. And so, you know, again, we just have to remind ourselves in those moments of the promises that God makes is that as hard as this life is, from another perspective, it's a slight and momentary affliction. You know, Paul, the Apostle Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians 4. And what's amazing about that is he's, he's chronicled the real difficulties that he's had that are not small. And so that is not a cheap statement that these things are afflictions, but that in comparison with the eternal weight of glory that's coming, this is a slight and momentary affliction, and it's going give to a, give way to a weight of glory that's beyond comparison. And so he says, so what do we do? We don't lose heart. Outwardly, I'm wasting away. Inwardly, I'm being renewed by the Spirit of God. And so we don't lose heart. Um, and so that would be my counsel, not that the suffering's not real, um, but that the Lord's salvation is real um, as well, is realer than this world. Um, one pastor I read once reflecting on Psalm 23 said, you know, goodness and mercy follow you all the days of your life. And there's a lot of other stuff that follows you in this world. Misery, grief, difficulty, but he said, for the Christian, there's a day coming, you, you outrun all of that. You outpace it all. But goodness and mercy, you never outpace. They're running with you all the days of your life. And so one day we will outrun those things that pursue us in this life um, by the strength of God and we'll come safely home. And so we need to continue to fill our hearts with that, especially in the midst of suffering, to be patient so the catechism says that I can be, because God is sovereign, I can be thankful in prosperity, but I can be patient in adversity because I have a good hope for the future. Um, and that patience for the hope that's coming is, is what we have to sometimes put on as Christians. But it doesn't mean that your suffering is not real and expressing real suffering to God is somehow an example of unfaithfulness. Yeah, yeah. And it's a good encouragement to us to come around our sister when she's feeling lonely and remind her that we love her, right? Yeah, you had something? Our time's up? Okay, yeah, if you have a question for me, then we can follow up. Yeah, okay, thank you. All right, let's uh, close our time with prayer. Father, we do struggle with the realities of this life, and we look to your promises, and we believe in them, but our experience often doesn't match up with uh, what you've promised, and so in those moments, help us to be reminded that the promises are real, that the Lord Jesus walks with us as a faithful shepherd wherever we go, that even through the valley of the shadow of death, you're with us and your rod and your staff comfort us. And help also fill our minds with that truth that surely good and mercy, goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives 
and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So we pray that you'd come quickly, Lord Jesus, but until that day, help us to be patient, um, trusting in you. And hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.